0: What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to being executed? You have a prepaid call from... William A. Aguero. An inmate at the California State Prison. And, for this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is be guy walk, walkways of sequence so Quentin death row without a gang, without a people around me. It was just me.
1: Soon after you went into to be on death row...
0: <laughs>
1: Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William McGarrow. Bill, today we have the case of Richard Cottingham, and you have a particular affinity for this case, I I would venture to say, don't you? I I do. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Great. So we're going to get into that. First, we have a couple listener-submitted questions. And we do appreciate you guys sending your questions in. We will get to them at some point. And you can send those to our Instagram page. That's uh, at Death Row Diaries. Also Facebook at Death Row Diaries. And this one came from our Patreon page. And that is, of course, patreon.com slash Death Diaries which you should look into signing up for. You could pay a couple dollars a month and you get access to bonus content and episodes that we don't release to the general public. Bill Caroline, one of our most devoted listeners, has a question for you. She says, Bill, have you come across any serial killers who have shown genuine remorse for their actions to their victims? If so, have they tried to get help for their compulsion to murder? Have any of them tried to stop? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thank you.
0: Um, yeah, all of them say at some point that they, either they didn't do it or that they actually they feel remorse. They, I've had one guy actually start crying, telling me that he's no longer a threat, he's too old. That's an act. They will say the right things. Um, They will sound sympathetic. They understand the the pain they cause the families. This is a a rehearsed line. They don't actually feel it. They are performing. They are doing what they feel people want to hear. They don't actually feel anything because inside of them, these guys are driven to do this. This is something they're born with. They cannot stop. And, you know, it's, it's... it's something they they, they they want to do. There's something, it's like a person that drinks. Sure, you can always say that they stop drinking, but with serial killers, it's not just alcohol. Their alcohol or their habit is a thousand times more powerful because they were initially bred or born that way to want to kill. So if you ask them if they want to get out of it or they, or they feel you got them dead to rights, they're gonna tell you, yeah, look, I'm sorry, I lost my temper, or uh, whatever. But they don't feel it. There's no remorse. I've never seen a serial killer who has sought help to try and change because they don't want to change.
1: These guys don't want to change. Yeah. To me, it would seem almost immaterial. So it's like, okay, you drove around for 15 years killing hitchhikers. I don't want you to get out or have any kind of path to do anything, so... I guess, I, I, yeah, I just, I wouldn't really care if they were sorry or not. It just it wouldn't make a difference to me, personally. Yeah, me either. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, if the person had a redeeming
0: quality, you would say, okay, great. But serial killers don't have redeeming qualities. Serial killers are wired that way. So no matter what circumstance, if you put them in and out and they've been they castrated, it, it doesn't matter because it wasn't about that. It's a mental thing their gratification comes in their heads. So there's no way that you can rehabilitate a
1: serial killer. It's impossible. Anybody who says they can is fooling themselves. Julio in Santa Fe, New Mexico asks, Bill, are you angry about your circumstances, or have you ever been angry at what point were you the angriest I guess he's assuming that you've been angry at some point, but (laughs) you you understand the question, right? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Look, everybody in this
0: circumstance gets angry in some way, shape, or form, Uh, whether it be because someone who had uh, a worse case than you was allowed out and you weren't. uh, But at some point, if you're on the right trail, in my opinion, to rehabilitation and understanding yourself, you have to accept responsibility that you put yourself in a situation. And sure, there are moments of frustration. You know, I was, I was given a, a, um, a full reversal of my conviction, and sentence, and I was ordered retried or released. And that release date should have been March the 17th, 2018. So, sure, there's a bit of frustration there, but what always keeps me Strive to do what I do is that I understand that ultimately the responsibility rests on my shoulders and that uh, when you accept responsibility for what caused you to be arrested or put in place and, and, and all those different things that go along with it, you, it, it makes it easier to understand that, look, there are things you can do to possibly increase your chances uh, and I'm doing those things, but those decisions are out of they're out of my hands. I can do I can present the best case scenario for the to see who I am as opposed to an eighteen year old boy that was. Um, so I'm I'm hopeful of that. But I'm not too sure if you can say I've ever been really angry about it because the only person that I have to be angry with is myself.
1: So I guess that's the best way to answer that question. Yeah, and just so the listeners know, Bill is kind of constantly involved in legal maneuvering and legal wrangling. He has attorneys that he works with and that work for him that he he can't really talk about the details of it, but you know, it is kind of a process. So anyway, thank you guys for the questions and we do appreciate them. Check out the Patreon page if you haven't. So Bill, let's get into Richard Cottingham. He's known as the torso killer the times square killer because he's a New York, New Jersey guy and he was operating in the early eighties and up to the mid eighties and killing an untold amount of people. And we don't really know how many. So I guess like usual, should we start with his upbringing? I can't find anything weird here at all. Not to say that nothing happened, but I can't find it in my research huh, well,
0: have no fear. I am here. Um, so you, yeah, he is known also as the, the New York Ripper. And, and they call him the torso killer, uh, because of what he does to his victims, um, uh, during his career. But he actually started killing him. He started killing in the 60s and went all the way to 1980, you know, and, um, yeah, he has a, a long list of murders. He has spoken to journalists,
1: and we'll have to get into why we believe that he may have killed up to 80, maybe even 100 people that he calls the perfect murders. So I will get to that when I get back. So going back to our question that Caroline had in, in our opening segment about remorse, he's calling these the perfect murders. I don't know what that means. What is that? Well, it means that no one knows he did him because
0: Into what happened in the home in the '60s and '50s, because you know there, it was kind of a hush-hush thing happening at homes. But from what we can basically look at from his childhood, if we know that he has—he's the first of four children. He's the eldest. He's the only boy. He has three sisters. He has what looks like a normal childhood. He graduates from high school in uh, Hillsdale, New Jersey. After high school in 1964, he works for Metropolitan Life, where his father is the vice president in New York. So, not a person that was struggling for money. The guy was middle class, at least. And he, you, we can see that he's, he's a guy who has aspirations. He starts in the mailroom, and he works his way up to a mainframe computer operator, which to reach that level, he took courses on computer management and computer operating skills. And within two years, he's already reached the mainframe computer operator and he switches positions and starts working in 1966 as a computer operator for Blue Cross Blue Shield Association in New York. And he actually works that position until 1980. So this guy is not a bomb, he's not a guy who's a transient, he's not a guy who had a criminal background who was murdering people as a child. This guy was, if he was, he's very refined at a very early age. But I don't think that's the case. With this guy, I believe that, I believe with this guy, you have a person who assimilates very well. He has a drive to kill, but he also has the ability to wear a mask extremely well. Because no one knows about this guy's background or what he's doing during this time where he's working at these particular positions at Metropolitan Life and at Blue Cross Blue Shield. Because by that time, when he starts at Blue Shield, he's already committing crimes
1: that no one knows about. So this guy's dad is the vice president of MetLife, a major insurance company. So he's got a pretty good upbringing. I feel like most of these guys, it's, you know, living in a trailer. Their mom's a prostitute, eating pork and beans, screwing your cousin type of thing. Like, what percentage, if you just had to ballpark it, of these guys have, an you know, a reasonably good upbringing? Well, I think the number is smaller and the reason is because of their upbringing and
0: and let me refer to that most of these guys who are brought up like this guy upper middle class educated they're usually pretty bright people they have this need or this drive to kill much of the ones that whose mothers were prostitutes and they were beat and all this stuff is because they're on the lower spectrum of intelligence when it comes to serial killer. The higher spectrum, it takes a lot longer to catch them if they catch them ever. That's why we know about the ones that were abused and all this stuff because they seem to be at the lower spectrum
1: it let's see the time frame was it Akala? yeah he worked with an active
0: serial killer in the same office who i'm very well acquainted with rodney Akala, who is a dating game killer he was also already on the run because he had raped and brutally attacked a young child in los angeles and he went to new york Under the alias of John Berger, he was already committing murders in New York while working at Blue Cross, where he crossed paths and actually worked in the same office with Richard Francis Connington, the torso killer. So you have two serial killers working in the same office, the dating game killer and the torso killer. What are the chances of that
1: happening, Matt? They're low. But we do see this occasionally. Like when we covered when we covered Harrison Graham, he was the kind of crackhead housing insecure guy in Philadelphia who was killing people and he lived like a block away from Gary Heidnick. And on the show, if you listen to that episode, I had never seen this covered anywhere that that Graham attended Heidnick's church once. There was a photo of them together. And so We do see this, and I don't know if it's just a matter of raw numbers and that it's just a coincidence, or if these guys have an understanding, if they can spot each other, if they talk about these things in the parking lot and kind of encourage each other. I don't know. I'm kind of leaning towards that maybe they usually do. Yeah, it's it's more feasible when you have two lunatics at a crazy church that attracts Nuts and weirdos and I can see that. But to be working at an office, Blue Cross, where there is no relation, there's no
0: obsessive behavior, cults or anything else, and the two really well-known serial killers are living there, I mean working there, it's pretty incredible. Now, you know, I don't know how much of a behavioral expert Roddy Akala is or Coddington, they hunt people, so they understand people's habits. They, they because they're hunters. That's what they do. Could they know, or possibly could they have known that the other one may have been involved in something different? You know, it, it, it's it's food for thought. I would lean towards that. Yeah, it's like a gang. The gang member recognizes another gang member a bank robber, usually recognize another person who is into stealing things or armed robberies. Or you can usually tell the types with serial killers who are rapists, child molesters. Was there a conversation in that same office? I'd say so. Is there a possibility they compared notes? Possibly. The chances are there. And, as I said, people of a certain type recognize other people. It's not very uncommon. So, yeah, I would say that they did. So, anyways, this guy, they're both active serial killers at this time, which is nuts. They're already active, and they're working in the same office. So, but by May the 3rd, 1970, the torsal killer, Clinton he marries a woman. And they have a normal life. They have three uh, kids, two boys, one girl. And really, nothing is going on. I mean, this guy's a normal guy. He's working as a computer guy. There's no red flags. He does have a few run-ins with the law. They're not big. Most people could have these type of incidents in life. In 1969, he's arrested, or he's not arrested, he's pulled over for drunk driving. He pays a fine, that's it. About three or four years later, in 1972, he's arrested for shoplifting. He's hit with a $50 fine. It isn't until 1973 that an eyebrow rouses, arises. And he, ha- he gets arrested for robbery, oral a, a woman. Um, it had sexual abuse. It was a sexual abuse charge, and it was all on a sex worker and her pimp. So I'm thinking the robbery part is he refused to pay her. Um, he had sex with her. They went to the police, filed charges, but they never appeared in court, so it was dismissed. That right there gives you a little bit of a, of a kind of a look that he is aggressive because the robbery part following year, again, same charge. Robbery, unlawful imprisonment of a sex worker, again, they don't show up, He's, it's all dismissed. And then you hear nothing, he goes silent. But we know that five years prior to this, six years prior to this, he was already murdering people. He, those days were off days for him. He, he got involved in a situation where pimp came in and tried to force the situation, and they got into a confrontation. But let's look at his history of who he killed and how he stopped and killed women for the better part that that people know of
1: of 13 to 15 years. Well, with these petty crimes, I feel like it's kind of weirder than you're giving it credit for because hold on for this helicopter I don't know what it's doing it's like right overhead right now it's looking for you (laughs) but like you know when people talk about NFL players it seems like every week it seems like every week some guy's punching his wife or doing something insane and then you go alright well these guys actually commit less crimes than the non-NFL demographic but then you gotta point out okay but these guys are making seven figures a year and people that make that kind of money hardly ever do this kind of stuff because they're removed from it they don't have a motive a motivation so I think it is weird that he's engaging in these things I, I think it's highly uncommon oh yeah but people that frequent prostitutes usually have confrontations. Let me get a call back. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay,
0: so, yeah, the confrontation with these sex workers can be looked at kind of in a different way. Sure, the sex part, the abuse, you know, the robbery with a pimp, it seems to be a confrontation between him and a sex worker who probably said a certain price in it of course he doesn't agree, he doesn't want to pay and you get a confrontation that, I, I think it raises an eyebrow because sure it puts him in, in the vicinity of sex workers that's number one, it happens twice 73 and 74, but prior to that in 69, drunk driving, not that big of a deal, shoplifting, it's a few dollars fine it could be a stick of gum it's not that uncommon but what is uncommon is that when he does get put in or arrested for these things or these given a fine for him. He is already a serial killer. In 1967, he kills his first person. He's 21 years of age. He's still working with his father at MetLife. He is already killing. Here's his first murder, October 1967. He strangled Nancy Shevia Vogel. Well, her name is Nancy Shevia Vogel. She's 29 years old. She's a married mother of two. She's found nude, hands tied in front of her, under a blankets, behind the passenger side of her car, in Ridgefield Park in New Jersey. She had last been seen on her way to play bingo at a church. It takes unsolved. No one even knows that he does this. And this is what I keep preaching about these serial killers. It takes decades sometimes for law enforcement to catch up to the guys that did it. And usually it's because they confessed to it for whatever reason. So this is his first murder. And we have to, because it happened, happened in 1967, we're talking about it now. But this guy is prolific. His second murder, 1968, 23-year-old Diane Cusick. She's found raped, beaten, strangled in the backseat of a car and found near Green Acres Mall in Valley Stream, New York. Again, no one knows it's him. That's a second murder. We don't hear about this till 2022. Now, think about it. He kills her in 1968. The case has not been brought against him until this year. And the only reason it came to his attention or that he did it was DNA. But it took nearly. 50, what did take 50 years to catch this guy on this case. And there are very few cases like this that after so many years, the evidence is still preserved enough to charge these guys with. And that's why I say when guys say, well look, these are the only... Someone says, well, this guy, John Blow, killed 10 people. And he started in 1965. That is so inaccurate. It's so inaccurate because these killers don't just start off being perfect killers that don't make mistakes. And when they do get caught for a case, it's impossible to say that this is their first murder. They thought this guy didn't kill anybody until the 70s. But here we are in 1968, DNA proves it. He had already killed two people by 19, that we know of. Okay, so we have to fast forward because it was in 2014, that after being in prison for decades, that he decides to speak to a Berger County uh, prosecutor's uh, detective and kind of start telling his story about who he really killed between 1967 and 1969, because no one had any idea about it. So, let's take a look at that, Matt. It's incredible that no one knew about these murders. And again, this is the reason I tell people on, this, on, this epi- on these episodes, on this podcast, that when you catch a serial killer and you have them for 10 murders, usually the, the number's a lot higher. They just haven't decided to tell anybody because they have their own reasons why they don't want to talk about the other ones. So here we go. In 2014, he meets with Robert, and I'm gonna screw up this last name, it's Anna Zeloli and he is a Burger County prosecutor Detective. And he tells him, okay, I'm going to talk to you. I killed him. Jacqueline Harp, she was 13 years old in 1968. He grabbed her as she walked home from brand practice in Midland Park, New Jersey. He strangled her with a leather strap and left her there. Arlene Blass, she's 18 years old. She's found face down in four feet of water in the Saddle River. She was strangled with a cord. On April 7, 1969, Denise Falaska, she was 15, abducted in July 14, 1969, while walking to a friend's home in Emerson, New Jersey. She was found the next day, the next morning, in Saddlebrook Park, New Jersey, by the side of a road next to a cemetery. She had been strangled with a cord or possibly her own crucifix, and. She, this was kept from the public, except for the family of the victim, these three cases when he actually confessed in in 2014. Law enforcement had no idea these cases existed, none. And then in April of 2021, he actually then confesses. He confesses to a double abduction, rape and drowning murders of teenagers, Lorraine Kelly, who was 16, and Mary Pryor, 17, in Mountville, New Jersey. And it was one of the most notorious cold cases that no one had been able to solve. And he was the guy who did it. He'd been in prison for decades before he actually came forward and said, "Hey, <laughs> I'm the one who did this stuff, and you guys had no idea."
1: Can you imagine this stuff? Yeah, it's pretty insane. I'm trying to get a handle on this guy's personality. I guess I'm making the assumption that because he's kind of a computer dork that he is this kind of timid, nebbish, mild-mannered guy. But on the other hand, he's like getting into confrontations with pimps and prostitutes. So is he like if you had a conversation with him, is he mild-mannered or is he kind of like twitchy and just stereotypically psychotic or somewhere in between?
0: No, I think that he's perfectly normal. He wears a mask that no one can really see under. He's very good at what he does. So good, in fact, that he worked at MetLife. He worked at Blue Cross with no problems. He had never problems with his coworkers. He was never charged or for sexual harassment of a coworker because it's not about the harassment. For him, is he sexualizes the murderer. He sexualizes murder. He sexualizes the act of murder, which is strangulation. For him, the act of strangulation is the ultimate control, and that control has been sexualized by him as a serial killer. That's what his brain registers. That's what registers in him as he does this. And look, all these murders i mentioned, no one had any idea he, he did them. It was him he came forward and talked about this because when they arrested him in 1980 it was at a situation where he was actually in the act of trying to kill an 18 year old when they caught him and that's how this whole case unraveled and it happened on May the 22nd 1980 he picked up an 18 year old girl named Leslie Odell she was a sex worker and she agreed to have sex with him for $100. He took her to the Hasbrook Heights Quality Inn, and please remember that name, the Hasbrook Heights Quality Inn. And by the way, 18 days prior to that, another victim by the name of Valerie Street was found dead in that hotel. Okay? So he offers to give this Leslie Odell a massage. When she turns around, he grabs her arms, and he handcuffs her. Once he does that, he begins to torture her. And he begins to talk to her. He tells her that she is a prostitute, a whore, that she must pay like the rest of them. But she begins to cry, and it, it's a bit loud, and it catches the attention of staff members at that particular location. Remember, 18 days prior, another woman was fired at that same Hasbrook Hotel on May the 5th, and that was a, a young woman by the name of Valerie Street, she was 19 years old. So when the when the staff members at the hotel hear this girl crying stressfully that something's happening to her, they call the police. The police smash into the front, that's the door, and they find him on top of the girl trying to kill her. And he's really tortured her, he's cut her, he's done all kinds, of, and he is arrested immediately so as you can see this guy was on a tear okay so once he's in jail they, they charge him because the pattern exists they charge him with five murders that happened between 1977 and 1980 those other murders that happened in the 60s and early 70s no one had any idea about them so they charge him with this for, for, the, for the murder of Marianne Carr she's 26 year old she's an x-ray technician and she's found beaten and strangled in a parking lot and guess where ladies and gentlemen the quality in in Hasbrook. okay this is 1977 and she had been abducted from a, a, a uh, from the little Ferry apartment building where actually Cunnington lived with his wife so he takes her he kills her in 1977 and there are his M.O., which is handcuffs, there's uh, residue of tape on her mouth, and the case is cold for several years. You have no idea who's done it. Then, in 1979, firemen respond to the travel-in motel near Times Square. And this is where he got the name the Times Square Killer. When they get there, They find, in the hotel room, two bodies. One of them is Dida Gordarzi, and another woman is is unidentified. The reason they can't identify these women, and they don't identify Dida Gessari till later, is because he has removed their heads and their hands, hence the reason he gets the name, the torso killer. This became a very famous case, they found these bodies, he had doused him in, in lighter fluid and lit him on fire okay so that case happens and it turns out it's him the reason he became a very big thing is because as he leaves the scene in 1979 he runs into Peter uh, Peter Vronsky and he is a historian that later writes a book about serial killers and really paved the way for these interviews in prison where Coddington starts confessing these other murders. And he admits then at that interview, years later, that he severed the head, the arms of these two ladies in the hotel room because he knew the victims. And the victim, Vida, had been seen with him the night prior. So they would connect him to the murders. That's why he cut their heads off. But it doesn't get in there. As I mentioned, on November the 5th, 1980, he kills Valerie Street at the Quality Inn Hotel. He has a thing about this, Quality Inn Hotel. And she's found with handcuffs. Obviously, the handcuffs, there's the first and only time that he leaves a piece of evidence, it's in 1980, and it's a fingerprint. He left it on the handcuffs. And she died of strangulation, she had been cut she had been tortured same place as Mary, Mary Ann Carr and then of course of Lesfield the, old, the same place the same hotel let me call
1: back hey man yeah so if you wanted to book a room at this Hasbrook Heights Quality Inn say this Saturday Bill how much do you think that would set you back oh, you know I have no freaking idea hotel room when I was i was out 1983 was probably what 25 bucks 20 bucks i have no idea oh man things have changed yeah i was surprised it was this cheap it's 240 240 dollars yeah for the quality in it's terrible it, what, what do they what is that is that just a mattress do you get like breakfast at continental breakfast or something because that's a lot of money for a whole car. i don't even in my car well, it's because the same companies own all the hotels and they're engaged in price fixing. We used to have something called antitrust laws that were enforced, and that would take care of this problem. Anyway, let's not go off on a tangent. So, Bill, where do we go from here? Well, it's, it's
0: a pattern that I'm looking at here. In, in the month of May, he's, you know, he's killed, obviously, uh, Valerie Street. He lives at the same hotel. And then on May the 15th, he, well, he, he kills Jean Regner and she strangled her throat cut in the Seville hotel. But with this one, he cuts off her breasts and poses them on the headboard of the bed and then sets the house, the room and matches on fire. Similar to the torso killings at the,
1: um, at the motel near Times Square, which was a travel inn. he sets a hotel room on fire? So he's is he just trying to get caught at this point? You know I don't, I really don't know the reason but his M.O. seems to be to set the mattress on fire he puts lighter fluid on it where the body's at and he lights it on fire he's probably thinking to get rid of all evidence that ties him to it
0: but unfortunately for him 10 days prior to that he killed Valerie Street and he left a pair of handcuffs on her and he left his thumbprint on it And that's how they connected all these cases to him because when he's finally picked up on May the uh, 22nd of the same year for trying to kill Leslie O'Dell, when he's arrested, the other murders that all happened at the quality Inn are tied to him because of that fingerprint. They left basically a few days prior to that. So this guy in the last, back last year of 1980, we have three homicides within 15 days of each other. And of course, when he gets arrested, he starts talking. This is several decades later, he starts admitting to all these other murders, which I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, which was uh, uh, Nancy uh, Vogel, Diane Kuzik, Jacqueline Harp, Irene Bates, Denise Falaska. Uh, the teenagers, Lorianne Kelly, Mary Pryor, and it's just, it's a huge list, but they never charged him with them, so when they do get him for these five murders, he's ultimately convicted, and he's saying it's not him, they have the wrong guy, and all this stuff that they always say, it takes him a few decades, and then he starts to talk about what he really did. And when he begins to talk and he gives details that no one knew. They compare his DNA and it turns out that he was him. But I would be very cautious in believing, oh, okay, well, he's, he's confessed to these 12 murders or whatever number it is and that's great. We've solved these cases. But remember what I said and what I caution. Serial killers have reasons in why they tell certain things and why they don't tell other things. And this is a guy who I really believe He told about those murders because he wanted to feel a bit of that gratification again. He wanted to get credit for what he did, and he wanted to relive the moment because he was getting a lot of attention. I'm willing to bet that there are several other cases between eight and I say about 14 other cases that he's never come to, that he's never going to come to. By the way, because he's still alive, I believe he's 76 years old and he's in prison. He may talk about them later, but I believe for now they are special to him and only to him, and only he knows that he
1: committed them. Can we go back to something? Because I'm not really understanding this at all. It's it's not coming together for me. So he's talking about the perfect murders, meaning just executed cleanly and you know untraceable, essentially, and yet. The behavior I'm seeing, setting mattresses on fire, getting into like fist fights with pimps, this all seems like he's drawing attention to himself and it's kind of like the opposite of a quote unquote perfect anything. Well
0: yeah, but you're thinking about the perfect killer you watch on television. This guy's meticulous, he's very quiet. These guys are going while they're killing, serial killers in specific, are going through like a euphoric moment. They are All of their adrenaline is running. Everything is going towards that ultimate climax of gratification. At those moments, they make mistakes. Lighting a match on fire, doing a good idea right then, but it's really not a good idea. It brings attention to the murder. Doing the killings at a hotel, at the same hotel, you've killed several people. That's not too bright. But we do know for a fact that he did kill perfectly because the names I named first. He was never arrested for, he was never caught for, from 1967 all the way to 1977, and no one knew about him. He admits that he killed between 80 and 100 people. And he calls them perfect murders because he's never been questioned about it, no one knows he did it. And I'm pretty sure that no one knows about the bodies, because he put them somewhere where no one would find them. What do I think of that number, 80 to 100? I think that's incorrect, I think he's boasting. If something, for, well, for serial killers, the act of killing, controlling, raping, that whole sexualization, it's the most important and monumental moment in their life. They're not gonna say between, well, 80 and 100. They know the exact number. So that he said between 80 and 100 is false. He knows the number. He's just not telling you what the number is. We saw that with the Alaska killer, the Baker, the Baker killer. He knew exactly how many people he killed. It was 37. He had them drawn in the map, and he only gave up 17. The other ones he kept for himself because they were special to him. That's what serial killers do. They have a special number that's theirs and theirs alone. That's something a lot of experts will not admit to because they don't really understand serial killers, nor do they have they spent as much time as I have and spoken to them? The majority that I've gotten close to and I've been able to get them to open the door for me, they know exactly the number. And they can tell you exactly which ones were super special to them, and they have a number attached to that number, to that that victim list, and this guy hasn't. He gave up a few because everybody had forgotten this guy. How does he bring that tension back to him? In 2022, he admits to another murder. I'm sure in 2023 and 2024, he's going to do it again. He's going to bring more attention to himself by saying, well, this is what the other body is. How am I so sure? Well, (laughs) the evidence speaks for itself. He's been doing it since 2010. Every few years,
1: he gives up a few more murders. So is this just his way of staying on the radar, or what's his point exactly? Well, he
0: gets gratification from it. He relives the moment. He's able to talk about it, and he's now understood because they got him to talk about it. This historian of serial killers who wrote books about him, he's got, you know, they start talking. They've been talking for years, and he begins to like the attention. So he starts telling them, okay, there's this. But ultimately, he's not going to tell him everything. He's going to tell him what he wants to tell him. And it it comes down to he gets attention. He gets credit.
1: He gets to relive that moment again. That's how they do it. How do you think that the authorities are approaching him, or to ask the question a different way, like if he was in San Quentin with you, how would you interact with him, assuming the goal is just to get him to talk, to try and get some of these unsolved murders at least, um, you know, figured out who did it.
0: Well, it might be a little bit difficult, and I'll tell you why, because he's already talking. He knows his ultimate goal is to reveal. The ones I've gotten close to really
1: don't tell anybody anything. They don't talk, they don't want to talk. According to them, they're innocent, they didn't
0: do it, So if you establish a relationship with him, you can get them to talk about specific things to you only. This guy's already talking. And he has his avenue, he has his vehicle in order to... He has a vehicle to get the information out there, which is this historian and a particular law enforcement who he's already talking to. So he's not going to reveal anything until he wants to reveal it. So I don't think in a situation like that, a guy like me who just gets to know him is going to get close to him. I would have had to establish a relationship with him when he first got arrested, and he got to see me over the years, and he and I get to talk, and, and I get him to open up. In this situation, I think it would be virtually impossible because he's already got a vehicle to, to release that information, and he can control the information as he sees, sees fit, and it gives him, again, that ability to control. Remember, he's a guy who likes to strangle, so therefore he is controlling everything Life and death is in his hands. So I would I would say
1: that it would be impossible to just kind of talk at this point because he already has a vehicle that he talks through. So if you had to guess, if you had to speculate, how many murders do you think he committed and how much of it is bullshit? Well, he said 80 to 100. I think that number is inflated. I think it's completely wrong. If I were to guess, I'd say he killed between 22 and 29 people. I think they may have based the American psycho book that Brett Easton Ellis wrote on this guy uh, and the movie starring Christian Bale, just kind of a cult classic. But the whole point, the whole joke is that this guy is rich and born into privilege. So he has no consequences for his actions. So he's almost begging to get caught for, you know, for being a serial killer, but it, it just can't really happen because, I don't know. They, they just don't look in certain places or, or at least you can get away with it a lot easier. Anyway, Bill, it's been interesting as always. And we'll be back next week with another story. And until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And
0: I'm Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life
1: could depend on it. We'll see you next time. All right. Is that cool? Right. Did you want to say anything else or are we good? That was a pretty good one, right?